0: Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerouted podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi,
1: everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to the Rerouted podcast here on Rondas' Be Here Now Network. Uh, You can find out more about me and some of my upcoming offerings at my website, www.maximeclarity.com, M-A-X-I, I'm like Mary, you like email. Clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y, like clearseeing.com. Today we're talking about, uh, again, sort of what it means to come into awareness and into a relationship around one's racialized identity, and the emphasis that I've been talking about a lot is about waking up as a white-bodied or a white skin privileged, or a white-adjacent or a white-lived experience or any of these positions where if you're looking at your social location, which is sort of what is centered in terms of being a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, male, Christian, English-first language here in the United States, born in the United States, etc. cetera, when you're looking at what is centered in a system that categorizes value to people based on random assignations of things like ethnicity and melanin levels or ability or gender or sexual orientation and things like that. And when we're talking about systems, we're talking about things like legacy burdens that uh, internal family systems founder uh, Richard Schwartz talks about sexism, patriarchy, capitalism, individualism, racism, these kinds of things that we're sort of looking at in the context of these systems of ranking who is centered and who is marginalized. And and because we know that there has been a long history of construct around keeping people uh, in certain places and we see this particularly in the United States. but We also see this uh, in the caste system in, in, in India. I know that uh, Isabel Wilkerson just wrote a book about uh, called Caste, and I uh, encourage people to read that. It's, it's certainly a good read, and it, it gives us a perspective in terms of um, how the United States has created sort of a caste system around race, that we can begin to interrogate white People or white adjacent people as racialized beings also, and not just people who are having different levels of pigmentation uh, that are considered racialized beings that experience uh, racial trauma or or, or, or racial experiences that also white people in sort of the ignorance or in the denial or in the not knowing or in the not considering whiteness as a thing in and of itself as part of a system that affects everyone, um, that there can be uh, a lot of deep learning there that can also happen. And so we're leaning into that. We're leaning into the self-reflection around white-bodied or white-adjacent or white or light-skinned privileged folks. Even if you're, quote unquote, a person of color who's um, marginalized in some way, um, we're, we're just sort of naming That in this system, there are assignations of value based on racial identity. And to that end, that's a long introduction that doesn't really have anything particular to do with um, Judy Ride, but it's sort of talking or trying to lay out a framework of the work that she brings to the table. She's an author whose books I've read, um, one of which is called Being White and the Helping Professions, which is a support for folks like therapists or anyone who's in a in a in a helping professional profession role teachers people who are even mindfulness teachers or yoga instructors or um you know psychologists psychiatrists physicians and also white privilege unmasked which is uh another terrific book to sort of talk a little bit about what is it that people who have um white identities uh or have white bodies or white adjacent bodies what are the things that sort of come along with that, that may be unpacked or unmasked, to use Judy's term, uh, that we can kind of dig into and understand a little bit more about as we lean into becoming embodied anti-racist. So with all of that said, Judy, coming from uh, all the way over across the pond, welcome to the Rerooted podcast. It's so lovely to see you today. Yeah, lovely to see you too. Francesca. really nice to be
2: Thank here. Thank, Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yes, it's my it's my pleasure, and I have to say, Judy, you know you're one of the few people that I've read who's created at least books that seem pretty readily accessible that anybody can read them, um, even though they're sort of intended for therapists or people who are working with, um, you know, communities uh, in a in a in a helping professional way, not necessarily a corporate way, you know, a corporate context, that um, they really could be applied to any context. Um, what motivated you as a white woman in the UK to kind of start unpacking and exploring this area? Well,
2: um, I've always been interested in what could be called diversity. And um, it, I'm not, I don't feel I've really quite got to the bottom of why that was, has been such an interest of mine. Um, I mean I I speculate in my book that I had a sort of best friend who was black when I was at school and she was pretty well the only black person I knew and when we left school she um, rejected me and all her other friends at the school realizing that she'd been in the receiving end of racism and that was a very formative experience for me. Um, How old were you? I was well, I was 14 when we, well, I think she, we were, she was, we were 12 when she came to the school.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: we got, we became closer really because I was, my class was a bit less than the other people at the school. I was a bit different as well in a different way. And there were three of us that made friends. One was me who, who <clears throat> didn't quite measure up class wise. There was her, who was actually highly intelligent and very um, sort of upper class in a Nigerian setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, someone who was very overweight. So we were all three marginalized people, I guess. And we Mm -hmm. made a little threesome. And none of us were made prefects. (laughs) So we had a a sort of our own, what we called a common room. Like we were all together, really. And so anyway, so that was a, a formative experience for me. Um, and then I became a psychotherapist. That's not the whole story. But I was very concerned about the way psychotherapy was such a white, well, undiverse profession, just full of white middle class, middle aged ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know if it's like that in America, but... Uh, um, So uh, I had an opportunity to uh, do some studying at Bath University, which is the town where I live, and um, it was at something called um, the Centre for Action Research and Professional Practice. So you used action research, which is a sort of collaborative um, type of research, um, to explore um, a matter of your professional practice it could be anything from your professional practice and I thought here's my opportunity to um to research uh di- the lack of diversity in the psychotherapy profession mm. but then I was very um challenged by the people that I had a supervision group we were all put into small groups with a supervisor and they were all saying I don't know why you're looking at this this isn't your area you know it's um you're not black you know why are you interested in this you know what what's going on with you that you should be doing that they saw me as a bit of a a do-gooder I think Hmm. you know what I mean Uh, because the whole ethos of the place was to explore something of yourself.
1: I see see? individual.
2: Yes yes but also you know, to go inside and, and explore it.
3: Sure, not, right. to, not to
2: be looking out there, at them out there, what do they like or what do they want or so on. So I had a good think about this and I thought, well, I can't be outside this situation. Um, the, the, the racial situation is something we all partake in and my partaking of it is being white. And in that sense, I'm privileged. And that took me, you know, I, I, I did various bits of writing to come to this conclusion, including about my school friend. I did a whole piece of writing about her and that was very formative for me as well. Um, so I started looking into being white and um, the first thing I discovered is that I couldn't see it. Like it was like looking at nothingness, like there was mm-hmm. nothing to see. And when I said this in this supervision group, um, there were two people, including the supervisor, who were not white. They were kind of a bit disgusted with me, I think, really. Mm. Surely you can see something. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, to someone who's not white, thinking about race, thinking about their race is not a nothing. It's not a nothing. It was a nothing. And um, that was that was quite confronting, and um,
1: meaning that it's a nothingness that you had never been tasked with having to think about in the same way that someone who is in a black or brown body is going to have to necessarily confront in a way, because often uncomfortable encounters around that that may have happened in your life. Because of other factors, perhaps a woman, perhaps a class issue around you know financial means or economic status, um, but not about race.
2: Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, and I think it goes a bit deeper than that. That that as a white person, I was just folks, you know. I was just I was not marked out in any way, you know, and I'm just, I'm just live my life. Mm, Right. You know, I, um, and then I started, I discovered white studies, sociological literature. So, not the literature I would have been reading because it was sociology rather than psychotherapy. And what I discovered there is that this whole thing that whiteness is nothing is something that had been quite well explored in that discipline.
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: And um, um, there were people, for instance, that wrote There's someone called Dyer. He said, you know, that the the privilege of white people is to be just normal. If you're white, you're just normal. And other people deviate from that normality by being a different color. Mm. Uh, And so that was kind of my way in was that. And then I started reading the history of all this and realising how white people had described the races in the first place. Of course, that it's not actually, I mean, there was a big movement, I expect you, you and your listeners know, that, that to actually find a scientific basis for race, mm-hmm. you know, looking at skulls and so on, um, and uh, there were all sorts of very strange ideas around at the time about that like you are more intelligent if you had a long face than a round face sort of thing that kind of
1: right right all of these pseudo-scientific ideas around you know if it's this it means this and who was it Linnaeus I believe who categorized some of these things and and, yes that's uh, right yes you know it's just this idea that um you know sort of picked and plucked you know who's more human or who's more this or that and yes, and, uh, yes. and then these tropes have continued and persisted in terms of who's more endeavoring or who's more intelligent or who's more uh you know resilient or beautiful who has, even yeah well of you course.
2: know it was yes like caucasians uh which is very bizarre because they they, they were for some reason considered more intelligent and capable and beautiful than anyone else so th- this word describing white people as Caucasian mm. which means very odd um, came into being um, and it's still it's a term that's still used today it means absolutely nothing really.
1: Right, right. Well, <clears throat> I did a different podcast with a woman by the name of Dr. Jacqueline Battalore, and she wrote a book called The Invention of White People, and you may be familiar yes. with it. And it's just simply that. It's that there was just this categorization that was randomly constructed, um, but for a purpose.
0: And, yeah, and, and, and
1: you know, perhaps yeah. you can get into what that purpose is and how that plays out and infiltrates also um, all institutions, all all structures, but also um, particularly how it can manifest in a way that's insidiously um, unhelpful in the helping professions, as you say, as a psychotherapist.
2: Absolutely, yes. Um, So, um, where are we going? (laughs) Yeah, well, you can
1: continue with your other story and then we can come back to that. We'll just bookmark that.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so the history, I mean, I think all that sort of seeps into society. So it seeps into, I see it as a systemic thing, but sometimes people think that means that the individual has nothing to do with it. I mean, I think that we're all woven into the societal systems and uh, it manifests through each of us and we all... Uh, know tap into that deep history that we experience almost in our DNA you know that, that it, it, it's it's there and I sometimes say to people when I'm working with them you know in workshops and so on um to catch their racial racialized thinking you mm. know that everybody people deny they're a racist. I mean, it's kind of it's fairly universal that people deny they're a racist. Um, and, you know, people who espouse ideas of equality and, you know, say that there should be racial equality uh, can nevertheless have racial thoughts. Um, yeah. And... Uh, It's very difficult to encourage people to actually own that because I think you need to know that in order to do something about it, catch it, you know? Sure. um, These thoughts go through your head like that and, you know, can you catch it?
1: Yeah, yeah, they're very subtle. And from the mindfulness perspective, you know, from sort of the the perspective of where this podcast sits in terms of self-exploration and in self-exploration, a self-investigation around how are we thinking? We're trying to understand our minds. We're trying to understand, yeah. you know, um, how they work and what happens. And, you know, the basic teaching there of, of the Buddha's teaching is, is that, well, causes and conditions, you know, um, are things that we, you know, sort of necessarily inherit as part of a process of, of, of kind of, Uh, coming into the way in which we learn to be in the world, if you will, and and that those are often the imprints that influence how we're thinking and what our beliefs are. But if if we're looking at that and we're sort of pulling back the the curtain and pulling back the veil and looking at things exactly as they are, we know that 99%, for example, of people um, is the same regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background in terms of DNA. And uh, this effort to sort of categorize people, dehumanize people, things like that, has um, been an effort in service to, um, I like to, I mean, I don't like to, but I, I use the word like extraction, the domination, the, the whole idea of, of categorization around superiority mm-hmm. um, of, of certain things, so that there can be gain, at the loss and at the expense of others that are deemed um, either inhuman or disposable.
2: Yes, yes. And of course a lot of people would say that they absolutely do not agree with that. And yet, there are thoughts that people have and actions that come from those thoughts. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, let's talk about that. The investigation of whiteness, the investigation of white people as racialized beings, as people who are conditioned by race in a different way than people who live in black and brown bodies. How do you see that? You mentioned the word denial. I don't know if you if this is a good time to kind of peek at the slides that you've created that kind of okay. talk about that. Does that feel like yes, that that, be- So you've um, created um, a couple of models here, and I'm just going to take a moment to share the screen. Um, of what this looks like. You said denial here is this this sort of first uh, yes. stage um, of a white person coming into contact.
2: Um, I wonder if it's better to look at the next slide first because that here? talks about denial, yes. Is this one because, here? Uh, yes, okay. uh, because that slide shows sort of levels of denial, if you like, because yes. people can say, but I'm fine. I, you know, I espouse enlightened views about
1: this. Sure. So, so um, let's, yeah, go, go. Why don't you just go through? Walk can us I through just the go cycle. through it? Yeah. Why don't we just um, walk through the cycle? If, for example, you know, maybe provide an example of one that you've witnessed or seen in your life, where you've seen someone kind of go through this cycle.
2: Yes. Well, of course, a lot of people go through this cycle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, I think what, why I've made these things a cycle is because people tend to go around it. You know, it, you may think you're you've got past one, and then you might slip back, or you might, you know. Sure. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not different. linear. It's not linear. Yes. Um, so. The first level of of denial I'm calling white pride, when you're proud of being white uh, and you have no shame about it. It's just that's how you you're white and proud, you know, and you and those that are not white are inferior and there's nothing the
1: matter with that. And, well, here in, and here in the United States, Judy, there's a group called the Proud Boys that were... Yes, part, I've heard of them, yes. Yeah, that were, you know, involved in the Capitol uh, storming um, prior to the election. Yeah. And so we're just sort of looking at that word actually, interestingly, as being used even current day um, yes. the kind of form an identity around that. But please go on.
2: Yeah, and just about that, I think sometimes when we make a bit of an advance then there's a kickback and Mm -hmm. people like the proud boys are probably part of that. I imagine that's, I, I don't know, but I imagine that. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: then, um, um, it's not an issue for me would be, well, um, I don't really care about race. I'm not thinking about it. It doesn't affect me. I, you know, what's all this about race? I I don't care about it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not interested. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then some of them are okay. quite, you know, the the classic thing of what one of my best friends is black or something like that, you know, sort of, um, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I don't particularly like black people, but some of them are okay. That that kind of thing. Right. Uh, And then colorblind would be um, we're all the same you know, uh, uh, I don't see any difference. We're all the same. So denying a
1: difference, really. Right. Um, Which is so ironic because in the reality, like I just said, with the DNA, there's no difference. But because of the construct and the system that's been put in place based on these ideas that have been um, very much cultivated and pushed forward over time that are false and erroneous, just like, People believe the world was flat for a long time. Yes. Um, that, 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 that there is a consequence to um, what it means to now have different melanin levels based on the way in which people have been conditioned to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And the colorblindness piece is what we would call spiritual bypassing around the idea of skipping ahead. Um, yes, yes, yes. We- so,
2: of course, it would be nice if everybody was, in fact, if society as a whole was colorblind, it would be a great thing, wouldn't it? But it's not in that position. And actually, people who say they're colorblind are probably not colorblind, in fact. Understood. Um, and then the, the, the last one is what I call liberal angst. You know? um, sort of, oh, dear, I'm not doing very well here. And, mm-hmm. um Black people are having a really bad deal, you know, and the police stop them and, oh, dear, oh, dear, you know, with but not really engaging, you know, not really, and not looking at themselves also, you know, not seeing it in themselves. This is some terrible thing that happens out there. So, you know, liberal angst people are getting there, but they've not really thoroughly understood the situation.
1: Sure, sure.
2: So if we go back to the previous slide, Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I say denial I've got all those in mind okay
1: understood um,
2: gosh it's very small
1: <laughs> yeah I'm I'm not quite sure why that is but um I'll well, just denial say that. Isn't, funnily enough
2: yes so the first one after denial is when struggle that, to
1: understand other yes, perspectives
2: struggle to understand other perspectives so something will have sparked a difference in the denial situation, like suddenly coming up against something, reading something maybe, um, something that makes the person think, maybe there is something here to understand. And that person might start reading books, they might start talking to people, reading things in the paper, looking at things in on YouTube or whatever. Something has something has clicked in their mind that makes them look into it. They become interested and think, "I think maybe there's something to look at here."
3: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Um, and then um, the next one is um, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Now, this one, a lot of people really criticize me for including guilt and shame. In so this
1: interesting. Program. I'm curious about why. Uh,
2: well, there's two reasons, I think. One from people who are not white, and from from people who are white. Guilt and shame, I think, are probably the worst things to feel. You know, it's what it's. If you feel guilty or ashamed, it's like an attack on you as a good person. Mm. It's it's a, you know, it's not a nice feeling. Um, and I'm just. Maybe, so maybe i'll say why what it is in the model, and then i'll come to what people yeah. uh, how people um challenge it um, to me, if you understand that white people have a have um a privilege and think of themselves as superior, and that those who are not white are disadvantaged, and also that um, that the history of of white um, superiority, so-called superiority, is a very terrible and bloody one. Then, if you really take that on board, you're going to feel guilty. Mm. And if you feel guilty, you feel ashamed. Mm. Um,
1: so we um, really begin to acknowledge and take in the actual history of colonization of brutality of enslavement of genocide yeah. of um counting people as as percentages of human and um all of these other things um that have gone on for centuries um that 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 it's hard not to if you have a human heart um and you're actually bumping up into this uh, see that there's something very wrong about that. And, and I, I, I've used moral injury as a lens to kind of think about that or talk about that the way that, um, that's something that veterans, you know, who have, you know, killed and murdered and raped, you know, um, when they've been at war have come home sort of with that sense of moral injury. And I kind of feel like that's a way to kind of explore this, uh, guilt and shame piece, but go on, please. So, um, you know, some
2: people avoid that. Well, I come back to avoiding, of this actually, So maybe I won't say that now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, but the thing is that um, I am challenged on the guilt and shame front by white people because they say um, it's not it's not my fault. I've mm-hmm. not done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. But the more you look into it in the previous one, and you see that you have done things that are wrong. You know, and also that the wealth that was built up on the back of people, white people saying they're superior. um, We are still building on that. We still, uh, we still advantaged from the wealth that was built up at that time. So, you know, you you, weren't white people are culpable even now. It's not just a historical thing, although that's
1: something to feel guilty about as well, I think. But it's, it's, we are still culpable. Well, it's it's so interesting because what you're sort of pointing to is that there's a certain degree of entitlement with the privilege in a white body that makes you feel as though, well, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing that rugged individualism, the meritocracy, the um, manifest destiny piece around, like, well, I've you know, I'm I'm allowed to have this as opposed to, well, is what I'm having or taking um, at the expense of another. That's sort of sure. the, the question. Exactly. Underneath. Yeah.
2: That's very well put, yeah. So um, if you take that on, and um, what's not great is just wallowing in that, and not doing anything with it, because for one thing, you probably can't bear it for too long, but the next part of the, if we go around to the next part, um, rather than just think I'm guilty, it, the, the, the way out of that is to face your own privilege. You know to and what does your that white mean? privilege mm-hmm. yes, as a white person, what is your privilege, and what can I do about it you know it's it's um um and being prepared to to explore your own um racist thoughts and uh, actions um being you know really facing it uh and doing something about it, not just wallowing in in guilt, so I'm not saying. You should just feel guilty and that's it. I'm saying, you know, face it and see what can be done about it.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: then and that leads, if we go to the next one, to more of a sense of integration, of being more integrated as a person, um, less full of denial and more able to act from a wholer place,
0: mm-hmm. a place
2: in which you you're not you're not in denial. Right. Um, so that's, and then, it, you know, I've made it a um, a circle. And actually, I tell you what, let's go to the next, the, the, not the next one, but the next one, because that's, this this slide shows how blocks can happen a,
1: along the process that, you know, that I've shown a process, what blocks can stop. Yeah, the so these are the things that get in the way of becoming more racially, becoming, these are the things that get in the way of white people being more aware of themselves as racialized beings.
2: That's right. That's it. Yes. So, um, um, the first one, um, uh, so if you start looking at, um, what it's, you know, what, what being white is about, then the denial of identity of your identity as a good white person and that white's fine and don't attack it um, that's it feels too much of a threat and there's a kind of you know falling away from that back into a denied denial place Um, you know you might have done a course for instance somebody who does a course about race for their work, for
3: instance.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and they might get a glimmer of, you know, oh, maybe that
1: position's not
2: great. But when they come out of the course, they fall back because
1: it's just right. too much. Right. It feels, feels overwhelming. So they, yes. we've all seen the, um, uh, there's a book called, Di- uh, you know, Diversity. Inc. and it's sort of about the idea of um, diversity, equity and inclusion trainings that are you know, offered at nonprofits and at corporations around the world that do nothing to move the needle on equity because, which is about power and privilege and about access um, because they're just sort of teaching people from their left, to their left brain about sort of things you know or things that you're informed about, but it's not really involving from a place of a spiritual place or a mindful place, the compassion yeah. connection of the heart underneath it. Yes. And I
2: mean, what people learn on courses like that is how to use the right language so they can appear not to be racist. Mm. I think that often happens. Yes. And it's, it's almost as if that's what you're supposed to do. Right.
1: Um, to not offend the PC culture to, we call it CYA, cover your ass, you know, to make sure that you're not going to be put in a position. And it's interesting because again, who are the stakeholders and why would you be doing it? If it is from a mindfulness perspective, we talk about what is your deepest intention? Is your deepest intention to become more racially aware and racially sensitized as yourself as a racialized being and how you participate in a knowing or in an unknowing way in an ignorant or in in a white awake way about, oh, wow, I am in a white body participating in this structure as such how am I going to work with that awareness or are we having this deepest intention of no I'm just doing this training to check off the box to cover my ass to go through my tri- you know job. my yes. job yeah. and 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 that when we look at that that way then we really sort of understand more about well who is this serving what is this for and,
2: um, and I, think, I think if you're teaching a course like that if you come from a very accusatory place you know, um, then I think it's likely to make people feel um unable to take it on board, you know, like it, they they withdraw from from the accusation. Mm. Um, I think you need to come from a more compassionate place mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. in
2: order to help people but you know, go forward in the in their um understanding. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so the next one um, um, is similar in a way that, you know, if you feel guilty and ashamed, then it's, it, it is quite an overwhelming feeling and it's not nice and people do pull back from it. So, um, you know, so uh, nobody likes to feel like a bad person. Right, right. And so there's a tendency to, to pull back. At that point, um,
1: right, and then withdrawing then, from feeling like a bad person. Yeah, that's guilt yes. and shame. So we're just sort of skipping around here. I'm moving the slides here. The denial of identity feels like it's too much of a threat, um, and and the withdrawing from feeling like a bad person. I don't know how to tolerate my guilt and shame, and so therefore we're going to um, do the next piece here, which is the facing my own white privilege. And you're saying that there's the block here of wanting to hide.
2: Yes. What, um, yes not wanting to keep your head down like you know aware that there's something to face here but it's too difficult so you want to hide want to keep your head down not be called to account in any way um
1: so there's that then the next one is integration like when
2: you get to that well, it's quite hard to maintain that commitment it's it's it, it takes work you know it's it's not just an easy peasy thing it, it takes work to maintain one's level of understanding and awareness mm. um, it takes work so and then the next one is that if you get to um um you, you get, go, falling into another cycle of denial, um, you might, you know, another cycle to go through might be caused by feeling complacent. Like, I understand about all this now. Um, I've got there and there's no more work to be done. Um, so there's, there can be a feeling of complacence and a fresh, maybe the denial becomes more subtle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? More hidden. You can hide from it more easily. You've kind of learned how to do that. hmm Um, so um yeah. So that's the that's the um process I
1: Yeah, know. and I mean as you, you know, as you walk through this, I think it's really I think it's really important because we've talked about, you know, I've taken a lot of different courses with other people who are in white bodies and other people who are in um, black and brown bodies. And in the courses that I've taken, with people who are white bodies, I mean, I've witnessed the whole idea of the way people have denied or withdrawn or taken a step back or felt overwhelmed or felt like it was too much. And part of my training as a somatic experiencing and sort of focusing, felt sense-oriented kind of um, bottom-up practitioner is to kind of um, integrate the idea that there is a way to be able to be with our feeling of sinkingness. There is a way of being able to be with our bodily sense of heaviness of 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 you know the guilt and the shame it has a certain texture to it a certain weight to it a certain kind of a sense of well who wants that it feels like sludge it feels like lava it feels like volcanic and and who wants to to do that especially when i don't have to when i feel like i don't have to i don't think that i have to and that the other alternative is, you know, if I can just keep it at bay, if I just sort of have plexiglass around my life and I don't have to, you know, actually integrate any of this, then um, I can protect myself. And so um, it's easier for me to kind of uh, stay back here than, than, than lean in because when I do try to engage, it feels like it's too volatile or I don't have the tools to ground myself in a place that doesn't go that, that that doesn't keep me from from sinking into the shame spiral the quicksand around that and the mindfulness piece I think can very much help people too because in mindfulness we recognize when we're telling ourselves a story about something as opposed to just being with yes. actually what's here mm-hmm. and so this idea of like oftentimes people will say well because I have this racist thought or in Dick Schwartz's language from internal family systems, there is a racist part in me that is subtle and insidious. And even if I'm doing work, that it's a, it's a learning journey around becoming more racially aware as myself as a racialized being. And also in the way in which um, other people are impacted by racism and the structures of oppression, that, that this part is, um, you know, in a way uh, I'm kind of losing my train of thought. Um, the The idea of being a racialized, being even as a white person, that as you're coming into awareness around that, that you're able to use mindfulness to recognize when you're telling yourself a story about yourself being a terrible person, being a bad person, as opposed to being someone who has an imprint or a conditioning or a set of Things that have been told that in order for you to stay safe, you should think this way or be this way or have these kinds of friends and not those kinds of friends, right? And that, and that I think that if we can understand it from that perspective, there's a reason why I think this way. We're not indicting you as a as a person. We're, we're, we're looking at the behavior and the beliefs as problematic and we're, we're, we're inviting in your you know, cultivation of your courageous heart to lean into this and to learn yes, some of it? the tools. Yes. You know, to kind of ground yourself so you can stabilize and scaffold yourself as you do this this work. Because it's our collective liberation. It's no fun to live behind the plexiglass.
2: Mm. Yes, yeah, sure, absolutely. And I think what's really interesting, what you say, is how the body is a way into discovering that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think I could use that more. I think that's really. That's, that's very profound, really, that actually these, these things are actually embodied um, that we pick the, these ideas up in our bodies and hold them in our bodies, and that's maybe a key to discovering them. Um, I've always had this idea of that thoughts just sort of go through your mind and catch them, you know Yeah, but I think. Um, Actually, finding them in in your whole body is probably a great thing as well, um, and and
1: and letting them go. You know what happens if you do let them go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, it's 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 interesting too what you're saying because I think again, just sort of listening to our you know paying attention to our the listener base that that we have. Um, Joseph Goldstein, the mindfulness teacher, talks about um, it's out of a place of equanimity, which we would call balance. Um, you know equanimity is just sort of a, a calm presence, a calm mind balance, is that the mind opens spontaneously and intuitively to the unconditioned, the unborn, the unmanifest nirvana and 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 it's interesting when we think about nirvana, we think about peace, about you know sort of the the cornucopia of 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 uh, of pleasures and and things like that, but really, what we're talking about is being able to come to a place where we're unconditioned, unborn. We're we're imagining something new. That there's a place for you know when when people like Rezma Menaka, a somatic experiencing practitioner and psychotherapist here, um, he talks about somatic abolitionism. He's talking about using the body to help understand where the trauma is stuck in us as white people Yes, and how that shut down is part of what keeps us from feeling connected and related and this idea of curiosity and play is part of what enables us to imagine a new world that doesn't have to involve the kind of policing that we've had, that doesn't have to involve the kind of incarceration system that we've had but that in order to move through that to that place, we have to feel safe enough so that we can explore with curiosity and with imagination
2: mm-hmm.
1: what else might be born or new.
2: Yes, that makes me think, I, I, I'd like to come back to the challenges to the idea of guilt and shame, because in some ways that, I mean, I think Buddhists, for instance, might say that's not a great place to be Um, but how I understand it is every feeling that human beings have has a place has a reason to be there Mm -hmm. and a reason for guilt is if we've done something that's harmful then guilt alerts us to that and um, uh, if we feel ashamed of that it might help us to do something about it. it might help us to move through that so i you know i'm not saying that it's a good idea to be caught in this feeling of guilt and shame but that we have an something that alerts us to something seriously amiss here
1: Right, and, and I love what you're saying, Judy, because we're talking um, often about the, the energy of anger, the utility of anger, the energy yeah. and the utility of guilt or shame, the idea of using it as a sort of fulcrum toward accountability and towards sort of recognition, and that we, we can't really manifest change if we just stay stuck at the knot of I need to just push away from that.
2: Yes, because if I could just add to that, to that to hearing about what you're saying about anger, what yes. sometimes people do is rather than feel the guilt of themselves, like, I am guilty of this, they'll get angry about other people who are racist. Right. I mean? And that's, a, that's another way of being... Of a, that's another defence, if you like. It's not me at fault. It's other people who are horrible racist people. Right. Um, and, of course, it's important to understand them as well. Where are they coming from? What's that about? You know, um, like the... Um, what's it called, boys? The um,
1: the proud boys.
2: Proud boys. You know where are they coming from? What's that about?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, finding compassion for them in their. You know, so
1: it's quite complex, isn't it? Well, um, I think I think what we're pointing to is the difference between the behavior and the conditioning that begets that behavior, and the mm-hmm. desire to lean in and unpack. What leads us to come to the conclusions that we come to about anything in life and whether or not those are harmful or not harmful, skillful or not skillful, wise or unwise. And if we can then make a choice that is rooted in what we would call interdependence or our collective interbeing around the fact that we are not separate entities and there is no division these are constructed and using that as a place of opening our hearts and leaning into these challenges around our own self-concept and rooting ourselves in the idea of selflessness of the idea of like yeah i'm a unique individual in the relative world but i also am this wider vaster spirit that can from a heart-centered place of safety and connection be open to being more accepting of all of the various manifestations of my own behaviors that are challenging sometimes, and also the things out there in the world that um, are cause for concern that I want to help, you know, that I want to, that I want to change or be a part of of, without doing it in a way that's, as you say, a do-gooder or performative or white saviorism. Yes,
2: yes, yes. Uh, Actually, that brings me on to the other objection to guilt and shame that people, which people of colour will say I'm not interested in white guilt and that's quite often said and um, that sometimes looked on that I am saying that white's guilt is something they should be interested in. Absolutely not as far as I'm concerned because another thing that people can do with their guilt the sense of guilt is to try to get people who are not white to absolve them of their guilt i am a good white person aren't i that's sort of that's what's kind of asked of them at some level you know tell me i'm a good white person
1: right and and that's um, so problematic for people of color who are having to endure um sort of this idea of what offering the blessing i mean i I was raised catholic so i'm thinking of like the way that (laughs) the the priest was you know washing his hands over people to sort of absolve you of your sins or something yes um, which is just not the role that uh you know should be played here
2: no no so i you know i'm not saying that i I can quite see why people uh, of color might say they're
1: not interested in white guilt but they don't need to be (laughs) <laughs> you know? Well, that's what I mean. The white people have to do the work around understanding yeah. whiteness and themselves as a white-bodied, white-adjacent, white or light-skinned privileged person of color as a racialized being. And yeah. that this idea of whiteness hurts everyone, even though it benefits certain people. Yeah. So yes, both are true. Yes. yes. It hurts in different ways. Yep. Yeah. Some are obvious when it comes to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, and some are less obvious when it comes to white bodies in terms of what I think are neuroses, addictions, you know, suicidality, this idea of terrible lack of self worth or self value, self esteem, that can then be at the root of all these other things that prevents us from moving into a place of, of real connection.
2: Yes, I mean, the whole of society, I mean, none, no one benefits by a society that's full of conflict and division. It, um, yeah,
1: so... Not from a heart-centered place, from a place about, you know, how many shekels do you have? I think that there's a certain idea of it being more beneficial, right? Like the idea of like, well, when we're talking about just having been so imbued with this sort of capitalistic gain, greed mindset of more is better and everything has to be taken to scale and we have to extract as much as we possibly can, whether it's the rainforest or whether it's the, you know, sort of fields or whether it's the, you know, how much? How many billions is is enough uh, of dollars when we're talking about you know certain um, people who are the the wealthy the wealthy white men, frankly, um, in the world, and other people who are wealthy also that that, that are still part of that system. Um, that it it's sort of a false notion of what begets happiness and contentment. Yeah,
2: exactly. And and the exploitation of the world world's resources and global warming and yeah. lack of species yeah. It's really down to the actions of, of white people, in fact, on the whole.
1: Yeah. Um, so, Judy, as we as we kind of begin to wind down today, can maybe you talk about two things? One is, how is this specific to people in the helping professions? If you're a white-bodied person as a therapist or a mindfulness teacher or a yoga teacher, or a teacher, someone who's in a helping profession why is this even that much more important and how can you cause harm as you're trying to you know, sort of work in a, in a way that is, is in theory helpful and supportive to people's emotional uh, growth. Um, and then also, um, well, let's just, let's just leave it with that. Well,
2: um, what that brings me in mind Bob, is something that we haven't really talked about, which is a power differential. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, we've implied it, but, And if you're in a helping profession, you are in a powerful position, vis-a-vis your, whatever you're calling them, clients or service users or whatever people you work with. Mm -hmm. You're in a very powerful position. You you probably uh, it's through you that you obtain resources, for instance. Um, That you know your, and so your clients need to keep you on side and um uh you need to be mindful of your position that you're not only for white helping professionals not only are they white they've got other they are by their very um profession in a powerful position and if you're if you're white as well as professional. <laughs> sure, sure. It, it, it p- piles on the inequality. And to some extent, that's inevitable. I mean, for instance, say you're a housing officer. Um, I don't know if you have housing officers in America. I don't know how it works. But mm-hmm. in, uh, in Britain, you know, there is, there's public housing, as it were, that, cheaper cheaper. And if you're to get one of those, and you go to a housing officer, um, you, you know, you're at their mercy, really. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And um, so they don't know, is this person seeing me as black and therefore not in, you know, not in need or you'd rather give it to a white person, for Mm
3: -hmm.
2: instance? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think, I just think that, awareness of the power differential is really important
3: mm-hmm.
2: and aware of how you might be um, influenced unconsciously maybe or maybe consciously of, um, you know, of of your prejudice against certain people your um, we haven't talked about um, oh dear what do you call it. Um, when you're prejudiced, you have a certain... valence bias. Bias, that's the word. Mm Yeah. Um, That, you you know, you have to be aware of your biases. And um, so I think it's very important from that point of view. I mean, you know, from other points of view, they're just other human beings and it's important to everybody. But uh, there's an extra responsibility, I think, for people in the helping professions.
1: Yes, I appreciate that. Yeah, power plus privilege. That's what we're really talking about. And we're talking about equity work. And we're talking not just about equality, but equity work, which takes the power um, and the access and the resources into account that are... Um, rolled out the red carpet for some and denied uh, to others and that there are systems that are in place to continue to perpetuate that and that is what we're trying to uproot. We're trying to uproot the Seeds here that have been planted of ignorance and greed and delusion, from a mindfulness perspective, and we're trying to um, plant seeds of, of wisdom, compassion, and, and discernment, and and um, and right action, and ethics, and, and and equity, and equality, and balance. and And I think that as we as we kind of make that shift, when we're able to take an accounting, a self accounting of what's really happening inside, mm-hmm. and I do feel like a lot of people get stuck on that shame and guilt piece. And I know, as you say, that sometimes it feels as though it's a privilege to be able to get stuck on that piece for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I say there's really no use in it. Shame is quite narcissistic actually. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: it's understandable that people sometimes feel as though they're doing something good by feeling bad, but that (laughs) there's the complacency around that in terms of not actually moving the needle on equity and on um, collective liberation. And I think that at the end, when we feel like we're all together in something and we feel safe with one another on that, I've never found a greater satisfaction than, than that experience. So I would wish that we were able to, to move more toward that. And I thank you for creating this model and writing these books and doing your work to, you know, begin to shed light on what it is that that you know might be the stages there. And I encourage people to read them. White, privileged, unmasked. Um, and then also being white in the helping professions. And I know you have other books and other papers that are out there also that you um that people can find. Is there anything more you want to say, Judy, about any of this?
2: Well, I don't think so. Um it's been really nice to talk to you and um, have an opportunity to explain this to people. Um, so, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Judy Ride. And I'm Francesca Maxime with the Rerooted Podcast. You can find me at maximeclarity.com, M A X I M E, Clarity, C L A R I T Y.com. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care, Judy.